Going through our, our study in the book of Jeremiah. This is funny. I put Isaiah in my title of my study. <laughs> we're not in Isaiah. We're in Jeremiah. I'm going to fix that so I have this on record. Jeremiah chapter 18 through 20 this evening. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Calvin, the new daddy, is here and up. <laughs> Anybody need a Bible? He'll bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. Jeremiah chapter 18 through 20. We didn't get through 18 last time. Before we get into that, we have about three prayer requests. Um, one of them, Lenar's um, daughter-in-law, Lydiette Hamilton, her brother, Javier, uh, just started experiencing this severe weakness in, in his legs and his arms. He can barely walk. They don't know what's going on. They took him to the hospital. They think it might be some form of Guillain-Barr syndrome, but they don't know, and so they're they're checking to see what's going on. We want to pray for him, you know, make sure that doctors have wisdom, they can find out what's going on. Second prayer request we have is, is we all know Pastor Dennis, my pastor from California, uh, Tuesday morning, 2.30 in the morning, uh, he was up, I guess, and, and wasn't sure what was going on, so he took himself to the emergency room and uh, basically had a heart attack and um, didn't wake up his wife. He said that, well, he knew what I went through when I had my heart attack and didn't think it was that bad, so he didn't thought, oh, he won't tell anybody. And so, um, dumb move on his part, but um, and when I see him, I'll tell him. <laughs> but uh, uh, So they, they did an angioplasty. They saw that there's three blockages that need to be something done, but one of the blockages is in a place that's kind of tricky to put a stent in or, or not. They may have to do open-heart surgery, and so they just sent him to where his doctor is at Cedars-Sinai and, and uh and so he got there, he's transported today, and so I don't know what they're going to do, we'll find out, you know, once they check him over and see what's going to happen. I'm thinking they'll probably be able to get a stent in there at Cedars-Sinai, but uh, we, need to, we need to pray for him as well, and, and uh, uh, just, I know what he's going through, and so we just need to, need to pray for that. And then one more a prayer request I saw on our prayer list. Uh, that Lori and Warren Ransom put in. Please pray for my friend Dave, his wife Lynn, and their kids who are in South Africa. They have a mission farm. There is genocide happening there to the farmers, and now with the violence in Zimbabwe North, things are really bad. They cannot all get out of the country. Please pray fervently for their safety and that all the violence would stop. And so I saw that, and I thought, man, that's something that we need to pray for as well, something that, that the church needs to know about. So before we get into Jeremiah, let's pray for these three things, and then we'll get into God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, Lord, your omniscience. You know everything that's going on everywhere at all times. Lord, you're omnipotent. You're all-powerful to move and to work in every situation here, Lord. And we lift up Javier to you, Lord, and pray for a healing for him, Lord, for whatever is causing the weakness in his legs and in his arms and, and causing him not to be able to walk, Lord. Would you just touch his body and heal him right now as we uh, pray for him some 1,600 miles away, Lord, or wherever they're at. And pray, Lord, that you touch him and heal him. Give the doctors wisdom to know what's going on with him. Father, we lift up Pastor Dennis to you, Lord. We, we love him. He's been here many, many times. And Lord, I, I know what he's done for me uh, during my time of heart attacks. And Lord, he's experiencing this now. So I pray, first and foremost, you give him a peace, Lord, that just uh, passes understanding. Lord, help him to sense your presence in a greater way. Lord, we pray, Father, that um, you'd heal him, 
You touch those arteries that are clogged. Lord, even you can do it without surgery as we pray. You can do it right now, and we, we do pray for that. We do pray, Lord, if you choose to use the doctors, that they would uh, be able to just do a stent and not have to do open-heart surgery, Lord. Uh, that is our prayer for Dennis. Be with Donna and the kids and, and comfort them, Lord, and give them strength during this time and, and just a peace, we pray, Lord. And finally, for... Uh, uh, Lori's friend Dave and his wife Lynn and their kids in South Africa. Lord, we, we pray for their protection. We pray, Lord God, that uh, you'd help them. Uh, if, if they're the ones getting out, Lord, help them to get out of the country, Lord. We pray that the violence would stop, uh, Lord, that uh, uh, those that are causing it, if it's the government, if it's, if it's radical, whatever it is causing it, Lord, that you would bring a quick end to this, Lord, and, and protect those that are there, uh, Lord, especially, we pray. And Father, we now thank you for this time that we can open up your word and know, Lord, as we dig into your word, that you're going to speak to our hearts. Thank you for this time. We cherish it. We love it, Lord, and we just pray your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah is going to be told to go down to the house of a potter where he watches the man molding the clay. And God's going to teach him something by watching the potter mold the clay. Look at verses 1 through 6. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the will. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now here again, as with Isaiah, the figure of the potter and the clay, showing God's awesome sovereignty over man's destiny. God can make of you uh, and do with you whatever He pleases. And God is very good at what He makes. You know, whenever I worked with clay, and, and, and you know, it was never a pretty picture. It always turned out to be either an ashtray or a change holder. You know, it just messed up. But, you know, my son Joey, I mean, he took a, a pottery class. And, man, he does good. I mean, it looks good. You know, I could never do that. There's a, there's, there's a skill in that. But when the Lord does the work, Oh man, he's good at what he does. He created dirt in the first place. He created the clay in the first place. Paul the Apostle put it this way in Romans 9, 20 and 21. But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Those chapters 9, 10, 11 in the book of Romans Paul is speaking of this awesome sovereignty that, that God has over man. And he uses that same illustration, the, the picture of the potter and the clay. Now with Jeremiah, it's interesting. God said, go down to the potter's house, and then I'm going to speak to you there. He went down to the potter's house. He saw that he was working a work on, on wheels. And, and notice the three objects that are there. you got the, the, the potter, you have the wheel, and you have the clay. And I think it's pretty obvious. Obviously, they all speak of God dealing with and working with man. The clay, you know, that's us. Just common, worthless, you know, material in its native state. That that's you and me. Yet, yet a material that has the potential of great value and utility according to the skill of the potter. God is a potter. And the potter has that total control over the clay, which makes whatever he wants, desiring, uh, desires, showing God's awesome power over our lives. 
The wills, on the other hand, I like the wills. <laughs> the wills are the circumstances in our lives by which God uses to mold us and shape us into the people that he would have us to be. Now, in Jeremiah's case, he's watched the potter. The vessel was flawed in the hands of the potter. He's making this vessel on the wheel, but suddenly the vessel took a wrong shape. Maybe it started to wobble, and it's just not, it's not looking right. It, you know, it was no longer pliable, so the, the potter smashes down. All right, you know, I'm going to make something else out of this. And, and again, uh, God spoke and said, It's not Israel, the nation is Israel, like clay in my hands. And though Israel had been flawed, it was made into something it shouldn't have been. God was going to remake them. He would work with them again, a new work, making them into what He desired and intended them to be. You know, and we know as Christians, you know, we're the clay, Jesus is the potter. God has a right to do whatever He wants in our lives. He's the potter. There's a, a story I read about an American couple that went to Europe, to England, and they were celebrating the 25th wedding anniversary. Both in the man and the wife were connoisseurs of fine pottery, antiques in China. And they came to Sussex, uh, uh, they went into this little China shop, and their eyes signaled out this beautiful little teacup on the top shelf. And the man said, can I see that? That's the most beautiful teacup I've ever seen. And as he was holding the teacup, the teacup began to speak. True story, I'm not kidding. No, it didn't, it didn't speak. It's an illustration, okay. But the teacup said, I want you to know that I haven't always been a teacup. There was a time when I was red and nothing but clay. My master took me and he rolled me and he patted me over and over and over. I yelled out, let me alone. But he only smiled and said, not yet. And then I was placed on a spinning wheel. Suddenly I was spun around and around and around. Stop it, I'm getting dizzy. I said, the master only nodded and said, not yet. Then he put me in an oven. I never felt such heat. I wondered why he wanted to burn me. And I yelled and I knocked on the door and I could see him through the opening and I could read his lips. As he nodded his head, he said, not yet. Finally, the door did open. Phew. And he put me on a shelf and I began to cool. That's better, I said. Then suddenly he grabbed me and he brushed me and began to paint me all over. I thought I would suffocate. I thought I would gag. The fumes are horrible. And he just smiled and said, not yet. Then suddenly he put me back into an oven. Not the first one, but one twice as hot. And I knew I was going to suffocate. And I begged and I screamed and I yelled. And all the time I could see him through the opening, smiling and nodding his head. Not yet. Not yet. And then I knew that there was no hope. I knew that I wouldn't make it. I was just ready to give up when the door opened and he took me out and he put me on a shelf. Then an hour later he came back and he handed me a mirror and he said, look at yourself. And I did. And I said, that can't be me. I'm beautiful. I want you to remember, he then said, I know that it hurts you to be rolled and to be patted, but if you would have let, if I would have left you, you would have dried out. And I know that it made you dizzy to spin you around and around on a spinning wheel, but if I had stopped, you would have crumbled. And I know that it hurt and it was hot and dis- disagreeable in the oven, but if I hadn't put you there, you would have cracked. And I know that the fumes were oh so bad, but when, when I brushed you and when I painted you all over, but you see, if I hadn't done that, you wouldn't have hardened and there would have been no color in your life. And if I hadn't put you in that second oven, you wouldn't have survived for very long. The hardness would have not held. But now you are a finished product. You are what I had in mind when I first began with you. I, I like that. God, man, he's, he's a potter. We're the clay. Be careful about fighting about what he wants to do in your life. It goes easier for all of us if we just yield to him. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So this is what God was doing with the nation Judah. Jeremiah saw the potter take the jar that was marred, push the clay back down, smash it down, and begins to form a new vessel. Then the Lord says, look at verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which, with which I said I would benefit it. Works both ways. Repentance will advert judgment and the lack thereof will bring it on. Again, the point is what happens is the clay depends on how pliable it is. Too brittle and it will be broken. If it stays soft and the potter can turn it into this beautiful piece of art, obviously speaking of our lives as well. Verse 11. Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Again, God pleading with them to turn to him. And again, their response, verse 12, And they said, That is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his evil heart. I mean, they're, they're, they're staring at judgment in the face and they're refusing to repent. You know, people think it's hard to humble themselves and repent and submit to God. But I think in the long run, that's easy. It's difficult to stay stubborn in your life when you have a hard heart. You go, I'm just going to walk in my, my ways, my own plans, and the dictates of my evil heart. I think that's harder to do. Verse 13, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask thou among the Gentiles, who has heard such things? The virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. So even the, the Gentiles are going, I can't believe you Jews are doing this. I can't believe you guys are doing this. No, why? You're, you're rejecting your God for these idols? Verse 14. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? So here the Lord's comparing the relationship he had with the Jews with a beautiful, clear cold water just flowing out of the base of the mountain there in, in Lebanon. You know, the snow melts in the mountaintop and water's running in, in, into the surrounding streams. It's just perfect, cool, drinking water, pure, refreshing. I mean, who would swap, you know, swap water from the mountain for strange or polluted water? It's like, oh, okay, we don't want that. We want the swamp water. We want the nasty stuff. Give me some of that stuff. Yet, you know, that's what we do when we turn from God's provision and we sip of the entertainment of the world. We're trying to refresh ourselves with the things of the world. We're just drinking swamp water. You know, we're, we're not drinking the living water of Jesus Christ. And he says this why here, verse 15, Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. I mean, the problem was, as uh, we read here, they left the ancient paths. And that speaks of the, the teachings of their fathers. And that's what he's talking about. Listen, truth is always timeless. It's eternal. It's immutable. The truth is always the ancient path. Remember saying, you maybe have heard it before, if it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. Jews are taking a wrong path. They chose, verse 16, verse 16 to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. See, 
God's people should have been the most blessed people on the earth, yet these other nations scoffed, and, and they're going to be hissing at them. And, and here Jeremiah faithfully delivered God's message to the people of Judah. He did what God told him to do. As a result, what happens? Verse 18. Then they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Wow. I mean, Jeremiah has some tough words for the priests and the people of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's, he's uttering some, these, these blistering judgments. And his enemies, they're not going to take it. Oh, we don't have to take that from you. And so now that the persecution started to intensify, they're saying, man, we're going to get him. And, and so he's beginning, Jeremiah's a, you know, he's beginning to feel the heat. So what does he do? What would you know, any of us do in the situ- same situation? Run. No, he doesn't do that. No, he cries out to the Lord for help. Look at verse 19. He then says, Give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be repaid for good? For they have dug a pit for my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore, deliver up their children to the famine and pour out their blood by the force of the sword. Let their wives become widows and bereaved of their children. Let their men be put to death. Their young men be slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you bring a troop suddenly upon them. For they have dug a pit to take me and hidden snares from my feet. Yet, Lord, you know all their counsel, which is against me to slay me. Provide no atonement for their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. But let them be overthrown before you. Deal thus with them in the time of your anger. That's what I say, man. Now, Jeremiah, he loved the people. He cried for them at times. But here, he's not in a very lovey-dovey mood here. He's angry. He's upset. He's done. He's not loving his enemies. You know, it's hard to love our enemies. In fact, loving our enemies is impossible. Jeremiah, you know, he did the best he could to love it, but this is an Old Testament saint. He didn't have the, the advantage of being a New Testament believer. I mean, the, the, the type of love that, that's kind to one's enemies comes from God. It's, not, it's a supernatural love. It's a love that's a result of grace, that, that new nature they puts inside of us. Jeremiah... You know, he, he had an excuse not to love. He, he lacked that new nature. You know, he's gone, man, get these guys. Get them good. We have the love of Christ. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's impossible on our own. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, He can help us to do that work in our lives. Again, he's the potter. And we're the clay. And, and, and he can mold us and make us. And he can help us to, 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 to love our enemies. You know, he can make us into something far more beautiful than any of our own plans and the dictates of our hearts. And, 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 and that it, it's my choice to cooperate or not, to obey God and to, to love my enemies or not. But it's God who works in us and through us for his Good pleasure. And as a master potter, he can work with the flawed clay of our life that others would just flow away. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 19. Now remember, you know, God likes to use these visual aids to proclaim judgment that was coming. Remember Isaiah walked naked and barefoot among the people to proclaim the bare facts of God's judgment. Remember Ezekiel laid on his side. Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. Jeremiah 13 
Remember we looked at that a while back, that the prophet Jeremiah buried a sash, a priestly undergarment by the Euphrates River. This intimate apparel, Jeremiah wanted to retrieve it. It had rotted, which happened to be you know, a picture of the, the intimacy with God the nation had and how their relationship decayed and it's done. And, and we saw the potter and the clay. You know, when it comes to learning, studies show that you recall 10% of what you hear, but 50% of what you see. And I think that's why God so often used these visual aids. That's why he would call on the prophets to, to dramatize these divine warnings. Well, here in chapter 19, we, we find another prophetic visual aid here. And, and uh, it kind of you know, goes back with the potter and the clay a little bit. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go into the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. The Hebrew word forget in verse 1 actually means to buy. So Jeremiah is instructed to go and buy this, this clay flask, this jar that he would later, will see, break. And in the same way, listen, God has, has purchased or redeemed uh, Israel out of the Egyptian bondage. The, the jar will represent uh, the Hebrew nation, which God would break and humble. The jar that he's talking about is a jar about four inches to ten inches in diameter. It had a narrow neck and it was used to pour water out of. And the point to keep in mind is that the hot clay can be shaped and reshaped, but once it hardens and it breaks, it's impossible to repair. It ends up being discarded and scrapped. Both chapters 18 and 19 revolve around the potter and his pottery. Chapter 18 is God's personal message to Jeremiah. Chapter 19 is God's public proclamation to the nation. Again, God's intention was to mold Israel into valuable vessels, beautiful bottles, pure pottery, if only they'd been soft and, and pliable. Instead, they were hard-hearted, uh, stiff-necked, strong, and as a result, God had to break their self-sufficiency. He has to break their pride by bringing on judgment. It's also interesting to me that Jeremiah is told to go and buy the jar, but he's not going to get the message that God has to give until he goes to the location that God tells him with the jar. I think in the same way, yes, God can speak to us when we're home. God can speak to us when we're at work. But he has a special message for us when we gather together as a church. Now, now you don't have to be at a meeting of the church in order for God to speak to you. But he has encouraged us to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. But rather do all the more so as we see that we're living in the last days. He wants to speak to us, his church. And he does it in various ways as we gather. Something else to encourage us in Jeremiah's assignment is while these verses are about a specific judgment that was coming upon uh, Judah, the imagery of a jar filled with water, it, man, that's, that's always applicable to us all the time. So if we are jars of clay, then, you know, this like this narrow-necked water jar, we're meant to be filled. We're meant to be filled. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, is what are we filled with? Ephesians chapter 3, Paul gives us some insight into his, in his prayer when he prays for us. In Ephesians 3.19, he says, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the full, fullness of God. Let me say that again. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, that, that comes from a genuine realization that God loves you. You're deeply loved by God who, while you were yet sinner, came and, and, and died for you. I mean, you can do all the devotions you want. You can pray all the time. You can attend every meeting of the church. But unless you're certain of this passionate, extravagant uh, love God has for you, your own efforts cannot guarantee you'll be filled with all His fullness. 
I really believe you have to have this experiential knowledge of His love. I mean, what's the first thing that happens when, you know, when, when trouble comes our way? We question the love of God. You know, certainly in the world they do that. Well, a God, if a God of love could, you know, how could a God of love do something like that? But it's precisely the point of affliction or suffering or trial that we immediately question God's love. And it's hard to understand how He loves us when something terrible has happened to us or around us. But, but it's then that we can, in fact, really come to know practically through the, going through those hard times the love that God has for us as He becomes our strength and our refuge and our shield and our exceeding great reward. When we learn that He'll never leave us or forsake us, that He's a sovereign Lord and, and, and we see and experience His presence and His power, you go, whoa, oh, how He loves us like we sing. So let His love fill you that you may be filled with His fullness as His jar. We're also told in, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now that's a, a be being filled. It's a continual action. Keep being filled with the Spirit. There's a, a, a parallel passage in the book of Colossians that indicates if I want to go on being filled with the Spirit, I need to keep filling myself up in God's Word. Keep being in God's Word. As He shows us through His Word how much He loves us and how much He cares for us. Again, it's a choice on our part. Well, Jeremiah was, was to take his clay flask and take it with him to these leaders of these peoples and priests. Now, this is going to be like a, a joint session of Congress, leading politicians. Look now at verse 2. He says, And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. Interesting side note, this gate that's called the potsherd gate, because uh, is the gate when people had trash, like broken pieces of pottery, they were going to go through this gate to dump the trash located in this valley of Hinnom. The gate was also called the, the gut dung gate. The valley of the sun in Hinnom in Hebrew is Geheben Hinnom, sometimes shortened to the valley of Hinnom or, or Gehinnom. It's located south of Jerusalem, a place in the southeast end of the valley that was called Tophet or a place of fire. It was in Tophet that some of the Jews worshipped the false god Moloch. And we've talked about Moloch before. He was a bronze statue with his arms outstretched and it was heated. The arms were heated and they, they would offer, you know, the, the, the babies on, on his arms and the priests would beat their drums and yell their chants to drown out the baby screams as it died in the arms of Moloch. In fact, it was in the same valley we're talking of here that, that even King Manasseh sacrificed his son to Moloch. And later, King Josiah would tear down the, the pagan altars there and defile them. Eventually, it was turned into a, a garbage dump where the fires were kept burning con, to consume the, the, the worm-infested garbage, animal carcasses, dead bodies that had been banded, dead bodies of criminals. It became a very vivid picture of hell, if, you, if you've heard this word before. In fact, the name Gehenna became the Hebrew term for hell. So you can see the picture here that, that God is presenting, that's setting up here. So the Lord's telling Jeremiah to go to this gate, proclaim this message. Now for the message. Look at verse 3. It says, And hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. They have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. 
Jeremiah was despised by these people, but there was still an authority about him that compelled them to follow him to Tophet, to, to this area here. And, and among the many reasons God was going to judge them was, again, because of the child sacrifice that was going on. They were burning their children, innocent babies, offering to Baal. Or as the Lord puts it here, they have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. You know, modern science, technology has made the mother's womb transparent. We can see pictures, actual video of, of a life growing in her womb. You can no longer deny that it's a human life. It, it, it's viable from the very early stages. Left alone in that womb, it'll grow into a healthy baby. But here the Lord calls what the people did by the killing their babies. They, they've shed the blood of the innocents. In other words, the baby has done nothing at all to deserve to be put to death. So judgment is coming because you've filled this land with the blood of the innocents. Abortion is barbaric. It's savage. I don't know if you saw yesterday morning in the, in the news in New York, they passed a law honoring Roe versus Wade that legalizes abortion up to the baby's day of birth. Not only that, the New York legislators cheered and applauded Tuesday's night decision after the Senate removed restrictions on late-term abortions. They're rejoicing over this, allowing unborn babies to be aborted on the day of their birth. What a sad and evil day in our country to hear something like that. It's time that our Supreme Court fixes what they messed up. According to CBN, outspoken Christian and New Orleans Saint tight end Ben Watson, who strongly condemned this law, he tweeted this, and I, and I thought it was well put after the law was passed. He said, It's a sad and evil day when the murder of our most innocent and vulnerable is celebrated with such overwhelming exuberance. We should be supporting and encouraging the building of families which are fundamental to any society. By not doing so, we invite consequences untold. Amen. What is interesting and what blinds parents today to deny their natural instincts and, and, and to turn on their own babies is the same motivation that existed during Jeremiah's day. See, it all comes back to idolatry. All back to idolatry. Idolatry fuels abortion. Not bell worship, but, but self-worship. We worship ourselves and, and our convenience to insist on our right to choose over a baby's right to live. God is still outraged over the shedding of innocent blood. And our nation is just as deserving of judgment for allowing it to continue. And I firmly believe that there will be consequences as a nation unless something is done to stop this madness. Look at verse 6. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that this place shall no be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Seems like Tophet, again, was a particular site in the valley where the babies were killed. And, and some commentators suggest that the meaning of Tophet is drum. And that the site was called that because drums would be beaten loudly as a part of the ritual sacrifice of children, presuming to help drown out their screams. Jeremiah says, you know what? That's going to end. It's going to turn into a valley of slaughter because multitudes would be slaughtered there when the Babylonian armies invade. Now look at verse 7. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth. I will make the city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. 
And I'll cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with, with which their enemies and those who seek their life shall drive them to despair. So Jeremiah here predicts that the Jews in Jerusalem will resort to cannibalism and even eat their own sons and daughters. And, and this was one of the inevitable, horror, inevitable horrors of siege warfare. The invading army would surround the city and literally make them starve to death. The Romans would lay siege to a city for 15 years until all their supplies were exhausted. In the latter stages of an invasion, all the city's inhabitants often resorted to cannibalism. That's what awaited Jerusalem. Soon the Babylonians would lay siege to their beloved city. Which reminds me, just to lighten up the mood a little bit, did you hear about the cannibal that ate something that didn't agree with him? Yeah, it was his wife. <laughs> I thought that was a funny one. Or the other one I've said before. What did one cannibal say to the other after eating a clown? Did that taste funny to you? Okay, verse 10. God gets into this visual again as if the message needs to be more dramatic. He tells Jeremiah, Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. I mean, this is the, the final big dramatic illustration. Timing was everything. Now Jeremiah is bringing this home. Verse 11. And say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Even so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again. And they shall bury them into a fet till there is no place to bury. Thus they will do to this place as the Lord and to its inhabitants and to make this city like Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the places of Tophet because of all the houses on whose roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Because they wouldn't turn from their idolatry, including child sacrifice, God will allow them to be killed at the same place the valley of slaughter. Justice would prevail. Okay, verse 14 and 15 really begins a new illustration. Verse 14, Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, Thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks that they may, may not hear my words. Same message, different illustrations. Judah was inevitably going to be humbled by an invading nation. This time he likens them to, to stiff-necked people. Now calling them that, they would obviously know what that meant, understood, because that really meant that they, he, he was comparing them to disobedient oxen where they would not take direction from their master plowing with them. Jeremiah, he's preaching doom against these people and they're stubbornly resisting God. You know, he was not a pastor that preached your best life now. He was a pastor that preached, your worst life now is about to come. And you know what? As a result, Jeremiah didn't win many friends. I mean, he had already humiliated the priests and the leaders in that valley calling out their sin. He, didn't just, he just didn't stomp on their, uh, step on their toes. He stomped on them. Well, now, as we get to chapter 20, these guys, the Jewish hierarchy, they're done with it. They want to shut up this prophet once and for all. Remember, in chapter 11, Jeremiah's enemies, the priests from his hometown of Anatoth, they plotted his assassination, but it didn't work. Chapter 18, they tried to discredit him, slander and assassinate his character. Now in chapter 20, they're, they're ratcheting up their opposition. They're trying to silence Jeremiah with intimidation and torture, actual physical violence. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 20. Now Pashur, the son of Immer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. 
Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which is by the house of the Lord. Now, this, this guy, Pashur, he was, he was the chief of the temple police force tasked with maintaining order. Although Jeremiah was not posing any real threat, Pashur determined to punish Jeremiah. When it says that he struck him here, most likely means that Jeremiah was, was, was flogged with the usual 39 lashes. Afterwards, he's locked in, in, in the stocks, an incredibly painful, contorted position for your body to maintain. They're, you know, a lot like putting Jeremiah on, on the rack. Now, understand, these are the religious rulers of the day who ordered his torture. Sometimes the fiercest opponent of a true move of God is the institutionalized church. You know, religion frequently persecutes true godliness. And, and so this marked the first but not the last of the physical persecution Jeremiah would experience. Look at verse 3. And it happened on the next day that Peshur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, Thanks, I'm glad you released me. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> the Lord has not called your name Peshur, but Magor Misabib. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. Man, a night spent in the stocks after a brutal beating did nothing to dampen Jeremiah's fire for the word of God. I mean, here, here's how much good it did. Jeremiah boldly proclaims Pashur's new name, Magar Misabib, or fear on every side. It was a prediction of what Pashur could expect to experience. Now, the name change was accompanied by a prophecy in which Babylon was named as the invader for the first time. I mean, talk about being on fire. Jeremiah comes to this persecution with this holy boldness, and he, without hesitation, just continues preaching. Look at verse 5. He says, the Lord says, Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of the city, all its produce, and all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give into the hand of their enemies, who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, and all who dwell in your house, shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die, and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Jeremiah, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Again, it's pretty, pretty obvious the effect the rack had on Jeremiah, rather than shut him up, persecution emboldened him. You know, and that happens. Man, when persecution hits, what happens? Man, I mean, it seems like the, 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 the uh, longing for seeing the lost get saved intensifies. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire. Far from quenching the flame, it spreads it. It was Augustine who put it this way. The martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked, burnt, torn, butchered, and they multiplied. I like that. Even in the face of persecution, Jeremiah is staying strong. He refused to back down. He believed what God had told him in verse 1 of chapter 17. Which said, therefore prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before the faces, lest I dismay you before them. Obviously, Jeremiah feared God more than men. Now, privately, it's another story. Privately, Jeremiah would spill his guts. Privately, just to be him and the Lord, he, he would just lay out his heart. He was quick to express to God his disappointments and frustrations. He, he was strong before the people, but he melted in the presence of God. I mean, just look into his prayer life and you see that he truly was a weeping prophet. But above all else, Jeremiah was honest. Honest before the Lord. He never minced words. He was honest before God. Listen to him now. Look at verse 7. 
Oh, Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Lord, you, you, you inducted me into the ministry. I didn't enlist. I was drafted. I didn't sign up for this. I never wanted to be a prophet. I was strong-armed. He says, I'm in, in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Publicly, Jeremiah had been obedient. Again, he, he kept a stiff upper lip, but privately. You know, no one likes to be mocked. No one likes to be the brunt of the joke. Everyone likes to be liked. And, and the continual rejection finally wore on Jeremiah. Look at verse 8. He says, For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder. In other words, that was the message the Lord gave him to share. But because of the harsh message, he says, the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. See, the Jews rejected the message, but they took their anger out on the messenger. Don't be surprised when that happens to you. I mean, the the Christian gospel is the, the good news, but the good news begins with the bad news. We've sinned and we need to repent. And that part of the message, people really don't like to hear. They don't want to hear that. So don't be surprised, you know, when they take out the resistance to the message on the messenger. This has been Jeremiah's experience. And in verse 9, he wants to resign. In fact, he turns in his letter of resignation. Look at verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. That's it. I'm done. I quit. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, Jeremiah's tired of the ministry, tired of being a prophet. He's weary of the abuse he's gotten from serving God. Yet God told him that the road was going to be hard. God told him that he would be opposed by kings and princes and priests, even the people. Add it all up, and that's everybody. Now, with that said, it's one thing to be warned of a hardship and acknowledge it and say okay to it, but it's another thing when the hardship actually begins to happen in your life. So I don't think Jeremiah really grasped the, the enormity of all that he'd been called to do so much sacrifice. I mean, family and, and friends and possessions and riches and marriage and children. And in Jeremiah's mind, no doubt, the doubt if it was worth it to serve the Lord. I mean, he had little to show for his efforts. He served the Lord for 40 years, had no radio ministry, no mega church, no conference speaking opportunities. He preached for four decades and didn't have a single convert. You know, if I was a pastor, that'd be really, really difficult to endure. I think I'd want to throw in the towel. But see, that's why as a pastor or as a Christian minister, you have to learn to keep your eyes on Jesus and keep your eyes on the calling that he has on your life. We walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah, Jeremiah wanted to retire. At the moment, his ministry seemed too much to bear. He turns in his resignation. I will not make mention of him nor speak of him anymore. But then something happens. Keep reading verse 9. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back and I could not. Oh, I love that. Jeremiah threatened to quit, tried to quit, but he just couldn't quit. After turning in his resignation, Jeremiah went home, couldn't sleep. He opens his Bible, starts to read, and God's word causes divine heartburn. It just burned in his body. Uh, I can't keep silent. He was just, uh, you know, it just stirred him. D.L. Moody once said, I know the Bible is inspired because it inspires me. The scriptures lit a, lit a fire in Jeremiah. I mean, God's love, his promises, even his judgments brought his passion to such a boil that he just, he's got to speak the truth God has spoken. Yeah, he tried to resign from speaking, but after reading God's word, he couldn't stay silent. You know, this is a mark of a true man of God. Doesn't turn it on and off. He's not just a pastor because it's his job. He's driven. God's spirit and his love for God's word propel him. 
Ministry is not just, just a, a job. It's not a hired hand. It's not as a profession. It's a passion. Paul put it this way. Three times in his letter, Paul said that he was made a minister. It wasn't just an occupation. God put it in his heart. God worked in his life. It's been rightly said, before man enters the ministry, the ministry needs to enter him. So Jeremiah tried to write a letter of resignation. He couldn't do it. He couldn't contain God's word. He had to get it out. Truth is, you can quit if you really want to. I think we all know believers who are no longer really serving the Lord. They don't seem to have any internal fire upsetting them, nor they're, they're weary from, from resisting. That's because they succeeded where Jeremiah failed. They have pressed through and quenched the fire of the Holy Spirit. They've resisted the Lord. And, and, and you're seeing them after the fact settled into this mediocre spiritual life. And it's sad. You can have a life if you want to. You choose that way. But now that's not the life for me. Verse 10. For I heard many mocking, fear on every side, report they say, and we will report. All my acquaintances watch for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him and we will take our revenge on him. Still, Jeremiah talks about more abuse and attacks than experience, but, but as, then as usual, in the book of Jeremiah, here's one of those times the storm clouds begin to part, and just the, the right time, the ray of sunshine shines through in some verses, it just warm our hearts, and, and Jeremiah starts to praise the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed, for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. But, O oh Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. And Jeremiah just going, Oh Lord, but you are great. You are God. And he realized everything is working together for good. And he remembered that he was being tested through the troubles. And he reckoned that everything was going to unfold just as God had, had planned. So his heart began to sing praises to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. He has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of the evildoers. Great song. However, it didn't last long. Look at verse 14. He said, Curse be the day in which I was born. <laughs> Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon, because he did not kill me from the womb, <laughs> that my mother might have been in my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame? Well, talk about bipolar. I mean, man, he's singing praises to the Lord and ends by wishing he'd never been born. I want you to notice that this chapter ends here. It ends abruptly. There's no response from the Lord, neither is there a rebuke or an encouragement. It's so stunning that some commentators rearrange the chapter to end with a praise section. Now, we won't get into chapter 21 tonight, but we do know that chapter 21 opens up with the Lord coming to Jeremiah with a special word. Special word. You know, the Lord does that. You know, you get down in the dumps, you think, and then God says, man, i got something special for you. And God kept speaking to Jeremiah, even during Jeremiah's times of depression, and Jeremiah kept boldly proclaiming the word. You know, as we look at, at Jeremiah's life, we see that this whole spectrum of emotions I mean, he had distress, fear of shame, fear of failure, loss of strength, doubting the faith, loneliness, pity, disappointment, turning into hostility towards God. 
I think some of us, I think many of us, perhaps all of us have been there sometime or another. You know, maybe you're there right now. If you are, you're in good company. Jeremiah was discouraged. David, you know, he often faced discouragement. Paul described the care for the churches as an anxiety. I think of the, the prince of preacher, preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was given to, to fits of discouragement. He would often break into uncontrollable crying for no apparent reason. But what did these, all these men do about their discouragement? They spoke freely to the Lord about it. They came to the Lord. Behind the scenes, in private, Jeremiah spoke freely to the Lord. He poured, poured his heart out in it, and, 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 and in it were the doubts and fears and regrets and disappointments and discouragement. And at times, even despaired of life, but God brought him through it. One commentator put it this way, From Jeremiah's confessions, we learn that God does not call only those who have purged themselves from all weaknesses and who have achieved a high degree of perfection. He does not extend his call only to the brave, to those who never have doubts or problems, but he entrusts his treasures to earthen vessels, frail creatures of dust. Back to the clay and the potter. And here's the good news. When we go through similar times, know this. You have a friend closer than any brother in Jesus who is ready to hear us pour our hearts out to him. If you're in a, in a, in a pit of some discouragement, let him be your wonderful counselor. Keep pouring your heart out to him until he reveals something about himself that, that puts everything into perspective. Maybe a, a word, it may be a, you know, scripture, maybe a vision, maybe Lord speaks you in a dream, or just maybe the silent ministry of his presence you know, touching your heart. But be patient and know that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Pour your heart out to him. You, you, you have permission to speak freely. Then keep going on in what God has called you to do. Let's pray.